Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. In this episode, we'd like to introduce you to the Gospel of Matthew. And we have with us Dr. Dale Allison, Jr., who is going to give us a lay of the land for the journey that we're about to take through Matthew in this season. Uh, Dr. Dale Allison, Jr. is the Richard J. Dearborn Professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. He is the author of many books uh, on the New Testament and on the Gospel of Matthew and on other things as well. Uh, He has written this massive three-volume commentary on Matthew with W.D. Davies. This is just the uh, first volume. Uh, So this is volume one of three. Um, So to say that we have an expert on Matthew would be an understatement. He's also written uh, a number of other important books on Matthew. Uh, This book, Studies in Matthew, which is one of my personal favorite books, actually, on Matthew and on the New Testament. Uh, Interpretation Past and Present is the the subtitle. Uh, And also, uh, The Sermon on the Mount, Inspiring uh, the Moral Imagination. And I may say something about uh, one of the essays in uh, in the Studies in Matthew book, just because it's... It's it's blew my mind when I first read it. (laughs) Um, Now, Dale, you've spent just a little bit of time (laughs) thinking about the Gospel of Matthew um, and writing about it. And so we're glad to have you as an expert guide to guide us and our listeners through a journey, kind of orienting us to the lay of the land. And we'd like to start with our guests and ask them what initially drew them to these topics. What what first drew you to the Gospels and then Matthew in particular? I mean, Dale, what would possess you to write this much on Matthew? (laughs) So what what happened is uh, this. When I went off to graduate school, I was primarily interested in the historical Jesus, and you don't really need to explain that interest. Everybody cares about Jesus, who this guy was. And uh, at that point, I was aware that the Gospels weren't videotaped perfect copies of history. So my primary interest was not the Gospels as we have them, but uh, the history behind them. So the history of Jesus. And that's what I wanted to, to focus on. And I thought when I was writing my dissertation that uh, my next project would be on the Gospel of Mark and it would be asking historical questions about Mark. The problem was is that the director of my dissertation, W.D. Davies, told me at some point that he had a contract to write a commentary on Matthew. And he said, I'd like for you to write this with me. And I said, no. And then he said, okay, well, you know, we'll do it half and half. I'll write half the chapters. You write half the chapters. I said, no, I do not remember, except, of course, he was, uh, you know, the reason why he finally broke me down and I said yes against my will. uh, He was an imposing authoritative figure. He was directing my dissertation. So, you know, you, you want to please him. I had no idea that that was going to take a decade, almost a decade and a half of, of my life after I said yes. Anyway, uh, it's not that I was attracted to Matthew. It's that somebody forced me into doing this. Uh, now, once I got once I got into it, uh, once I got into it, I found Matthew compelling and attractive. And in retrospect, uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have written on Matthew. But it wasn't my choice. It's just one of those things that happened. You know, it's like life. You can't plan it. So you got pulled into this arduous task of interpreting the Gospel of Matthew. And as you've you know, been, been doing that, what have you found most difficult or challenging about interpreting or encountering the Gospel of Matthew? Um, well, the first thing isn't going to help your uh, listeners at all because it's a professional complaint. But when I, w- when I started in the 80s, I still had some sort of illusion that I could read most of at least the important things that had been written on this text. Um, there's been an explosion of literature in the last few decades, and nobody, in my judgment, can keep up with anything anymore. Mm-hmm. And if you try, it's just exhausting. So I started the commentary uh, on Matthew when I was in my 20s. I had a lot more energy than I have today, <laughs> and I finished it when I was in my 30s. Um, 
But today, I'm just in despair when I look at all the new books and the new articles. And uh, if I want to keep up with more than just one small little thing, I'm completely overwhelmed. So that's that's one challenge. There are lots of important things and good things being written that I know I'm never going to be able to read. The, the other thing that's uh, a challenge, and this is more relevant, I, I suppose, to your listeners, is that Matthew is from another time, it's from another place. It was written by somebody who lived in a completely different world. And everything in this text requires me to ask, what the heck did that word mean in the first century? You know, when you when you refer to Brad Pitt, everybody knows who, you, who you're talking about, right? <laughs> but if it's Herod Antipas, you got to go to a dictionary and figure this out. And what did people think about this guy uh, when he was alive? What did they think about him when he was dead? What were the, the legends and associations of his name and so on? And just every single, mm. single thing. Um, I don't know if we want to get into this later, but you just pick a little word like star, which shows up in the second chapter of Matthew. And then you, you, you realize at some point, you know, people didn't think about stars the way we do back then. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it actually becomes relevant for how the text was understood in the first century and how it was understood until very recent times. Um, I don't know any eunuchs. Do you guys know any eunuchs? I, I don't know them. But the word shows up. So what the heck is a eunuch? And, you know, what do people think about them? And, and how does a saying about eunuchs function in Jesus's time and place or mm. Matthew's time and place? So uh, I remember somebody asked me once when I was in graduate school, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a first century Jew. That's my aspiration. <laughs> and it's because I wanted to understand Jesus and I want to understand Matthew. And I realized that if I want to get back to the intention of these characters and, and this text, that I'm going to have to spend my life uh, as an historian. So that's thrilling and it's wonderful, but it's also very, very difficult. And at every turn, you just say, wow, that's different than how I think or how, how we think. So yeah. th so those are those are two things. One, one other thing, just very, very briefly, is that uh, my own uh, complaint is that Christians are always mashing everything together and conflating everything together. And if everything's in the canon, then they assume they all speak with one voice. But I think Matthew has a little different view of things than Mark, and that Matthew has a little different view of things than Paul. So the uh, goal for me is, first of all, to understand them on their own terms. And then if you're interested in a higher uh, theological synthesis, that can come later. But first of all, I want to understand what they themselves are saying without reading Paul into Matthew from the beginning and assuming they must uh, agree on absolutely everything. That's great. And we're going to return to that issue of Matthew's distinct contribution. Uh, but what I want to do now is you also let us into the important question of the historical setting of Matthew. Uh, so let's think about that because that's important to orient us to the book. So when and where was the Gospel of Matthew written and how do we know? Okay, well, we don't know if no is a really strong <laughs> word, right? Like Cartesian no, no is certainty, that sort of thing. We can make some some uh, guesses. My best guess is that Matthew comes from the last quarter of the first century. That's not an idiosyncratic view. Uh, a lot of scholars uh, think this. So that means that it comes after the Jewish war, after AD 70, but it's before uh, before the second century. I think there are little clues in the text that point uh, in, in that direction. I think uh, at least in one place, uh, the author's knowledge of what happened in AD 70 is reflected in the text. In chapter 22, he talks about the king sending troops and burning the city, uh, which isn't in the paral uh, parallel uh, in, in Luke. You know, they, ha they have the same parable, but Matthew has gone a little different way. And I think that reflects AD 70. Uh, so there are these these little clues that that put Matthew at that point. As for where, well, all I can say with any confidence is I think this comes from the Eastern Mediterranean rather than the Western Mediterranean. This isn't from Italy. It's not from Rome. It's not from Greece. It, it, it's over there in the East somewhere. 
The traditions about Matthew, Matthew the Apostle, and our gospel don't agree on much of anything. People didn't know much, but they never put it in the West, all right? And a lot of scholars would say this comes from Syria, which overlaps, I guess, with modern Syria to a great extent. But they would say it's, it's from Syria, and a lot of people have said Antioch. Uh, that's one of the big cities back then uh, in Syria. There are these little hints, but uh, the wisdom, I think, is we really don't know for sure, right? You can, you can say, well, Peter, we know, was in Antioch, and there's a lot of Peter in our Gospels. So or you could say, well, our Gospel is open to both Jew and Gentile, and there were both Jews and uh, Gentile Christians in, in Antioch. You can you can. You can read a lot into these little clues. So, if you had to, if I had to give you a city, I would, uh, I would give you Antioch, but I wouldn't bet more than twenty bucks on it, right? <laughs> do you think it really? I mean, do you, how much does it matter in terms of when it comes to? I mean, I mean, I understand people are really interested historically as a question, you know, but how much does it actually matter in terms of, or where might it matter when we interpret the text? So I don't think that where the gospel was written is that important. But I think when it was written uh, matters. So first of all, if the texts were from, let's say, the third century A.D., you probably wouldn't be looking uh, for it to tell you much about Jesus, right? So it's a first century text. So, you know, you still have some hope there that it's, it's got some, some memory, sure. but, but there are other things. So, uh, in chapter 27, Matthew has, um, the, the Jewish crowd cry out, uh, you know, let his blood be upon us and upon our people. Mm-hmm. And you can ask, what does Matthew intend to communicate by this? Does he stand after 70, and does he see this as somehow explaining what happened before him? Uh, that saying uh, has caused lots of commentators to talk about AD 70 in Jerusalem. So is that going on uh, in Matthew's mind? Again, it's relevant when it comes to the so-called Sermon on the Mount, uh, the end of chapter 5, where you have these traditional debates about Christian pacifism and so on. If that's written after the catastrophe of the Jewish war, it might make a difference to how the author Mm -hmm. is thinking about these things. Love your enemy, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. Mm -hmm. We didn't do that in the Jewish war. Now we really know what happens when you don't do this. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there are places, it seems to be in this text, where um, a post-70 retrospective view uh, probably affected how the evangelists and the audience heard the text. So I think I think that's interesting. What about other historical issues that the opening of commentaries, you know, tend to focus on and think about, like who wrote it, the author's identity, or the audience? I mean, is this intended for a particular community, or is it kind of written to everyone, everywhere, to Gentiles in particular? What are your thoughts on some of those? Okay, I, think, I think I counted five questions there. So let me see if I can, see if I can unpack this. First of all, the, the text as we know it says gospel according to Matthew, uh, you know, in all our English Bibles. Uh, I doubt that the title is original, although it's, okay. it is odd that there would be a book published without some sort of title or without the audience knowing anything about it. Um I do have a sort of pet theory about how the name Matthew comes to be attributed to to this text. And I draw an analogy with uh, the book of Isaiah in in the Hebrew Bible. So um, what I was taught, and I guess what our students are still taught, was that there are three major steps in the evolution of Isaiah, right? There's uh, Isaiah the prophet, the, the Hebrew prophet, and you find him primarily in the, you know, the first uh, one through 39 chapters, something like that. Uh, although there are other oracles that may not be from Isaiah that are in there. And then some of his students or the school of Isaiah comes on and adds another big block of stuff. And then another Somebody or somebody's comes on and adds another bunch of stuff. So that by the time you're done with the book, it looks like most of it isn't actually by Isaiah, right? But it still 
they, it still retains the name Isaiah. It started out as Oracles of Isaiah, and you keep adding, but it, it keeps the name. Uh, again, I wouldn't bet a lot of money on this, but one, uh, one hypothesis that I've played with a lot is that Matthew stands behind or is associated with initially uh, one of the sources of Matthew, maybe the so-called saying source or the Q source or part of that. You mean and, Matthew, the, the disciple, the tax collector? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. Although, although we don't know anything about this guy. So he appears in the all the lists of 12. And then there's a story in Mark, which is about the tax collector Levi. Mm-hmm. But Matthew changes his name to Matthew. Why, you know, the whole, whole, nobody's written a book on that yet. But there are articles on, you know, uh, why the name change and, and what it means. So we don't know anything about this guy. And I think all the later stories are legends because they don't agree about anything. OK, except <laughs> he's not over in the in the western part of the world. Um uh, but that's that's all you could say I can say about identity. I can't give you a name. All right, yeah. I, I am certain this guy is Jewish. I'm, I'm certain mm-hmm. that he's Jewish. I also suspect myself that he's had some sort of scribal or even rabbinic training. There's some really interesting things going on in this text if you if you look at it closely. Um, a few people over the years have noticed that there are these interesting uh, overlaps between uh, Matthew and traditions associated with a particular rabbi, Yohanan ben Sakai, who's a big rabbi, right after AD 70. That's really intriguing to me. There's also a stylistic habit of Matthew, which screams at me that this guy has to have some association with the, the rabbis. Um so there are places in, in Matthew, like 6, 19 through 20, this is about, you know, uh, don't store up treasure on your, on the earth where moth and rust is, but store up treasure in heaven. If you look at these two sentences in Greek, they're the same sentence. It's just one has negatives in front of a couple of things. And Matthew does this several times. Sometimes his parallelism is perfect. It's just the positive and the negation. And somebody's done work on this. There aren't any parallels to this in the ancient world. You just can't mm. find this anywhere, except in uh, rabbinic literature. Mm. The rabbis did this. And in mm. fact, there are quite a few uh, sentences like this in something called Mishnah Avot, which is one of the rabbinic uh, tractates. So I think this guy um, is some sort of, I don't know, maybe you want to call him a scholar, I think he's learned I think he's had some contact with the rabbis. By the way, I think that's in part why Matthew has more animus against the, the Pharisees and the scribes than the others. It's because he's left this group. You know, you're always madder at the people closest to you, right? Right, right. Uh, right. Luther hated Catholics. He didn't hate Buddhists. But he had a lot more in common with the Catholics, right? So I think it's the same thing with with Matthew. He's more upset with the people he's 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 closest to. So that's my my sense of thing. This guy um, is 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 Jewish, and he has some scribal training. In fact, there's also that really interesting saying at the end of chapter 13 about a scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of people look at that and say, yeah, that, maybe that's a little autobiography there. Right? Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe that's Matthew uh, himself uh, in the text. And then just one more thing um, that for me clinches this. When I wrote my commentary on Matthew, one of the things I always did with each allusion to the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament or the Septuagint, uh, I always looked at the Hebrew. I always looked at the Greek. I always looked at the, the Targums and the different mm-hmm. uh, versions and so on. And I came to the conclusion, as have some, that Matthew doesn't just know the Greek. He actually seems at points to know the Hebrew. So if he knows more than one language, if he knows the Greek and Hebrew, mm-hmm. then he has to have some sort of uh, training, it seems to me. If he's, if he's got knowledge of more than one text of the, the Old Testament, yeah, Mm. Uh, he's, he's some sort of some sort of scholar. Now th- that was just a response, maybe to the author, right? The, yeah. the author, yeah. yeah. Who is the, um, who's who's who, who are the recipients of uh, the gospel? Gospel. Of okay. Matthew? So first of all, um, I, I think the answer to that is just a human answer. So just ask what 
how many readers do authors want when they publish your book? The answer is always to say as many as possible. Right? I can tell you that. That's why I do podcasts these days. So, you know, it's best advertising for books. Uh, so I don't think Matthew wrote this thinking, yeah, maybe 10 people will read it. I think Matthew wrote this in the hopes that it would have a, a, a wide reception beyond his immediate uh, circle. All right. And I think that while he's Jewish and why he represents and while he represents uh, a sort of Jewish Christianity, he's also very open to Gentiles. The text ends with the so-called Great Commission go into all mm -hmm. the world. It starts with a genealogy that has four women in it. And you ask what they what do they have in common? One of the things they have in common is they appear to be. Uh, Gentiles or non-Jews or, or mm -hmm. converts. Galilee is Galilee of the Gentiles in chapter four. So there are these things throughout that sort of clash with, uh, you know, I came only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel or don't go to the, you know, the, the Gentiles or even the Samaritans. Matthew, I think, reflects two worlds. I think he reflects the Jewish world and then he reflects the fact that Christianity is moving out into the Gentile world, and he's not uh, opposed to that. And one of the great things about Matthew, it seems to me, is that if you ask, what's the most popular gospel in the second century? It seems to be, well, if you're looking at Gentile Christian texts, the answer is Matthew. And if you're looking at Jewish Christian texts, the author, uh, the answer is Matthew, that's really a neat trick, right? Mm, yeah. It's really a neat trick. And I think he pulled it off uh, because he's in one world, but he's open uh, to the mm. other world. He probably and, also went on a lot of podcasts. That probably <laughs> helped as well. That's, that's news to me. That's news to me. Um, let, let's move on to a question, which is probably a huge can of worms. And I, I feel a little bit... Um, uh, it's a little unfair for me to ask you, but briefly, how do you see the Gospel of Matthew composed, right? You've mentioned here that Matthew himself seems to have picked up on some rabbinic traditions, but he's also interacting with other sources. How, how does this all work out in, in his relationship with the other maybe, Gospels? Maybe he's interacting with Jesus or something yeah. like that. I mean, what's, you know, okay, how do we so, get from that to a Gospel of Matthew? So my answer here uh, is disappointingly conservative, by which I mean that I really haven't been able to change my mind uh, in the last 50 years. So I was taught in college and then in graduate school that Mark was the first gospel, that Matthew knew and used Mark. He also knew a collection of sayings of Jesus, and then he had some other stuff, and that it was the same for Luke. Luke knew and used Mark. Luke knew and used this sayings collection, and Luke had some other stuff. When I started uh, writing the commentary on Matthew, this is this is true. I said to myself, okay, I've pretty much just accepted what my teachers have said about this synoptic problem and their relationships, so this is going to be fun. I'm going to look at every single verse and every single parallel, and every time I'm going to say which which thing looks more primitive and what's the best explanation for the relationships I see. And by the time I was done, I was just gosh, I think my teachers were right, uh, which isn't fun. You know, you, you can't do anything new with that. Now, since then, there have been lots of people who've come along and said, well, this same source, this is probably a myth. And it's very popular now uh, to say maybe Luke knew and used Matthew. I, I don't buy that. I think that's a mistake. Okay. Um, that, that That's wrong. Okay, so my view is that Matthew uh, isn't in front of a word processor. <laughs> and I think he has to get this right first time through, probably. Now, maybe he has some scribbled notes, but here's what I think. I think he's heard Mark uh, enough and probably read it, too, that he knows it really well. I think he knows the sayings of Jesus in this saying source or cue. So I don't think he has to have these in front of him as he's working. And then I think he also has other sayings of Jesus and traditions and so on. So he's sitting down and he's thinking, okay, I've got this in my head. I've got that in my head. I've got this in my head. What do I do with it? Um, 
I think he, in effect, writes the thing before he puts it down or probably dictated it. All right. I think he has written the thing in his head. And here's the neat thing. I think you can carry the gospel of Matthew around in your head if you spend enough time with it. It's not that big a deal. It's just like memorizing uh, a, a long poem. So Matthew has these, I think they're mnemonic tricks, but he likes triads. There are lots of things that are set into three. I mean, the genealogy right at the beginning is one, two, three, and then we have an angel appearing to Joseph and telling him on three occasions, you know, what uh, what he should say. You get to the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about uh, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Uh, you, you go through this text, mm-hmm. and uh, there are triads everywhere, all right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think that he's got this general scheme in his head, and, and for me, it's Narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, all the way to the end. And uh, what this means is he tells you uh, what Jesus is doing. And then it stops. Everything stops. And then Jesus speaks for a while. And then you you get a bunch of stuff. Jesus is doing this and doing that. And then you have a discourse. So Matthew is arranged not just chronologically. Jesus is born before he dies and so on. But I think it's largely topical, and each narrative section has a topic attached to it, a main topic, and each discourse has an outline and has a, a, a topic uh, or multiple topics. And I think I, I think this guy could carry this around in his head or carry it around in his head before he uh, wrote it. I don't think it's like Galatians. Galatians sounds to me like Paul just blew his top and started, you know, <laughs> writing. <laughs> right? He, um, Matthew's more like the book of Genesis, which is lovely. Chapter 1, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. It's just great, right? Or the book of Revelation, for all its weirdness, you know, you got the seven letters to the seven churches, and then you got the seven this and the seven that, and the seven. It's organized, all right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, I can carry Revelation around in my head, and I can carry Matthew around in my head. I don't know what the heck Mark is. I can't carry it around in my head. It's a different <laughs> sort of thing. I don't know what, what it's all about. But Matthew is is well-structured and uh, that's my guess. He's actually been able to compose this uh, in his mind because the whole is broken down to parts and the parts are structured and some of them are even numbered in, in his own mind. Now, why do you think, uh, you know, this gospel was written? Why did, why did Matthew write this text? What purpose does it serve? Well, first of all... Uh, Authors always are a little presumptuous. They think they have something to say. And so my guess is he looked at Mark and said, I could do better than this, <laughs> right? Well, why, why, else, why else do this? And he could look at Q and say, you know, I, or, or the same source, I can, I can do, do, do better with this. But the question, I, I, by the way, I've asked this of myself when I've asked this question of, of the Gospels and New Testament texts. Why do I, you know, write books? Well, there are always multiple reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, maybe you want to make a little money. Uh, maybe you have a problem you want to solve. Maybe you think you've solved the problem and you want to share uh, your solution with, with others. Um, I also think it's helpful to ask about great literature. So what's the purpose of Hamlet? Or mm-hmm. the Brothers Karabasov, Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are multiple things going on, right? So there, right. I'm sure that when Matthew wrote, he was thinking multiple things. I can do better than Mark. Uh, we, we need to remember Jesus. But here's one thing uh, that you can add, I think, to, the, to these big generalizations. I, I said earlier that Matthew um, was successful in getting a Gentile audience and a Jewish audience. And I think that's part of what's going on in his own mind and why he's writing this. So at the end of chapter 13, where you get that maybe autobiographical reference to a scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven, what does he do? He brings out of his treasure things old and new. 
Now, that's really interesting. And and if you go back to um, an earlier chapter, it's uh, chapter 9, I think, where you have his version of the parable of the wineskins. You don't put new mm-hmm. wine in old wineskins. He's got a little phrase that isn't in the other Gospels. Uh, he concludes by saying, and thus both are preserved. That is, the old is preserved and the new is preserved. Mm. And so here's my uh, feeling for Matthew. This is my sixth sense for what's going on here. Matthew is sort of looking at the church. He's looking at, you know, new the new churches and what we come to call Christianity. And I think he's a little worried because he's all for the Gentile mission. But I think he can sense something like Marcion coming along. So Marcion is the second century theologian who draws a distinction between the God of, of Jesus Christ and the God of, of, of the Jews, of mm-hmm. the Hebrew Bible. And what does the Hebrew Bible then become for him? It becomes the old that you jettison, right? Mm. Matthew is saying, no, that's not what we want to do. We want to keep the old and we want to keep the the new we want to keep the old and we want to keep the new and for him that meant keeping the hebrew bible keeping the jewish heritage again i think he's some sort of jewish christian and uh his sense is yeah this is good we're open Uh, we're converting gentiles but uh we can't be unmoored from our past from what he calls the old and so i think of matthew as in part trying to keep keep the old, preserve the old within mm. within the new. We've been thinking uh, about kind of the world behind the text, the historical context from which Matthew came. Let's turn towards the text itself. And the first question to ask here is, we call this text the gospel of Matthew. So what does that term gospel mean? Well, uh, so that's a term Paul uses. And Paul uses this as, as a sort of summary of uh, the good news that he has to to proclaim. It appears elsewhere in the New Testament, but for Paul, it's really it's really a big word. Uh, in the Gospels, uh, they don't appear originally with gospel in the title, and uh, there's no place in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John where the word gospel uh, is what you would call a literary genre. Uh, at some point, there were multiple Gospels on the scene, and sometime in the late first century or first half of the second century, somebody says, oh, let's call these Gospels. We don't know who that was, uh, but Matthew is already called a Gospel or the Gospel in the Didache, maybe end of the first century, also in Ignatius. Um, and sometime in the second century, these are all the all four books that we have are, are getting this title. So originally it's a uh, it's a term used uh, to sort of encapsulate the, the, the gospel or heck, I'm using gospel to define gospel. Uh, the, important, <laughs> the, the important things, right? The good news, what, 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 what we, what we uh, proclaim. But then at some point after the gospels are written, it becomes a literary genre. And by the way, it's a, it's a literary genre that still functions today. So we have the gospel of Thomas, we have the gospel of Mary. It seems to me that whenever we have a book that is uh, <laughs> is primarily about the pre-resurrection Jesus, then we call it a gospel. That's pretty hmm. much, I think, how we use this hmm. this right. this term. And uh, in in the second century already, you have the Gospel of Peter. So uh, people are recognizing that it, it's not just four books in the canon that that have this title. It's like. Right. Well, Paul has letters, but there are lots of letters outside, uh, you know, the New Testament. So there are Gospels outside uh, outside the canon. So I guess the answer is the word starts out one way, and we still use it in that way. I guess if you go to, if you go to church today, people use Gospel in more than one way, don't they? They mm-hmm. use it to refer to the preached news, mm-hmm. the preached good news, but they also use it to refer to the Gospels. That's already happening very shortly after uh, Gospel of John appears, I think. 
Now, is this a particular genre, a, a, a gospel, it, like at the time of the, the gospels, or is it like biography? Is it history? Yeah, I mean, where do you? Yeah, yeah. So, so there's been a lot of discussion, as I'm sure you both know, over the last, especially what, 30 years, what, what genre do the gospels belong mm-hmm. to? And people get really, really interested in this. I don't care that much. It doesn't okay. do that. Doesn't do that much work for me. Uh, you know, you can have something that fits the genre of history, but it's not written by a great historian. Or you can have a biography that isn't particularly accurate, or autobiography that isn't particularly accurate. A lot of people today, I think, are sort of making an apologetical move. If if Axis if it belongs to the genre of history or if Luke or Matthew or Mark belong to right. the, bio, the genre of biography. Okay, so my, my own view is that the, the form of the Gospels has been influenced by Greco-Roman biography, but I think the content is primarily uh, from, or, or the, the, the best parallels are primarily from the Hebrew Bible. So, uh it looks to me like if you want to understand the Gospels, probably the best things to look at are the, yeah, the best things to look at are the narratives about Elijah, Elisha, mm. and Moses, right? right? Mm. Those, and then all the traditions that are tied to those narratives. So, they, I, Matthew is, well, when I wrote the commentary, I don't know how much I'd changed my mind today. I just said it's an omnibus of genres. It, <laughs> it, it, part of it looks like a catechism. Some of it is like an apocalypse. Some of it is, you know, biography. Right. But, you know, books usually don't stay or frequently don't stay within the genre they belong to. And... Um, Genre can be really important. I remember once years ago pulling a book off the shelf. It was on the Gospel of Mark and being deeply puzzled because I had heard none of the stuff in this book. And I I realized halfway through it was a novel, but it was presented as though recent discoveries about the Gospel of Mark. So it should have been on the fiction shelf. And so I I was totally misreading it and and was all confused. Genre does make make a a difference. But... um, for me, the the key is not uh, to be found uh, uh, in the Greco-Roman biographical tradition. The keys are these places in the Hebrew Bible where you get narratives about important prophetic figures doing these miraculous things. Those are the closest parallels, mm-hmm. I think. And there are deliberate, well, there, have, there are references to Elijah and Moses in mm-hmm. the Gospels and mm-hmm. clear parallels. They're just undeniable. If you would have, if you would have asked Matthew or John, I think they would have said they were writing something like a continuation of Hebrew Bible history. Mm. I think they would. If you'd ask Mark, I don't know. Uh, Mark's this great puzzle for me. I can't figure it out. It's too enigmatic. It's almost like notes. Uh, Uh uh, It's almost like it's waiting for Matthew to come along and make it better. Uh, Luke does conceive of himself as a sort of historian. So, all right, Dale, uh, we'd like you to t- take us on a journey, a brief journey through Matthew. But before you do, yeah. would you tell us a little bit about the? Is there some kind of overarching st- literary structure to the text of Matthew? You hinted at some of these things <laughs> earlier. So, so look, if you if you pick up commentaries, you'll see that there are different outlines of Matthew mm-hmm. and people offer different structures. So all I can do is share you my view of things. Now, I'm often not confident about things, sure. but I'm pretty sure Matthew agrees with me on this one. <laughs> so everybody has noticed that Matthew has these major discourses uh, it has a Sermon on the Mount. Then it has a discourse to the disciples or missionaries. Jesus sends them out. Then mm-hmm. it has the parable chapter, chapter 13. Mm-hmm. Then it has chapter 18, which sounds like instruction to the church, right, for forgiveness and so on. Uh, and then it has, wow, uh, 24 and, and 25, these big, massive eschatological discourses. Mm-hmm. So they've not only noticed that the action stops for these discourses along the way, but that Matthew ends them in the same way. You know, when Jesus had finished speaking all these words, there's a sort of refrain. It has little variations, but he does use it five times. And for me, that's the key. These are obviously 
discourses. There are obviously five. They obviously end in the same way. And if you sit back and look at these discourses, I think each one has a major theme. And then if you look at the narrative material that is in front of and after and between these discourses, I think it's possible to say each one has a sort of theme. So really, really quickly here, yeah. I think chap chapters one through four are the first narrative section, and they're just introduction. Who is Jesus? Where did he come from? How did he get here? Uh, you know, baptism and temptation. They're all, it's all prelude, calling of the disciples. It's everything that happens before things start happening. Mm -hmm. And then in chapter five through seven, you get what he said. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he said to Israel. These are his moral demands. This is what he preached. And then in chapters eight and nine, you get what he did. He goes around and you get these miracles and you get these healings, you get these confrontations. It's, it's introduction. Here's what he said. Here's what he did. And then you get the next discourse, which is chapter 10. And here he says, okay, uh, you're going to do what I've been doing. And you're going to preach and you're going to heal and so on. It's mm -hmm. sort of a, uh, imitation of Jesus type thing. It's here's what Jesus said. Here's what he did. And the disciples are going to say and do the same thing. And of course, we're going to offer some encouragement along the way, right? Because mm -hmm. things can get, get hard. And then the next thing makes perfect sense. It's chapters 11 through 12. And there are a lot of controversy stories here. There's a lot of rejection here. There's some acceptance. But it's sort of like this is, okay, Jesus has been introduced. Here's what he said. Here what he, here's what he did. Here's what the disciples said and did. And then what happened? How do people respond? Hmm. And it's a lot of negative response, right? Mm -hmm. There's some positive, but the negative uh, overwhelms. And then in chapter 13, you get the parables. And the parables are sort of explanation. That is, how the heck do you explain the fact that the Messiah has come and everything hasn't gone swimmingly? It, it doesn't make any sense. It's like Romans 9 through 11. Uh, the Messiah came, and this makes no sense. And so you you get what are, um, I think, sort of explanations or maybe even apologetics. That is, how can it be that the Messiah has not been accepted by everybody? And you get the parable of the sower, right? And there are four different responses, right? And the devil actually plays a role in, in, in one of these. Moral character plays a role. Then you get the, the tares and the wheat, which is all about the evil one coming in. You know, it's not just uh, Jesus is not the only actor in this play. Mm -hmm. There's something else going on. So you get what I think are sort of um, explanations. It's functionally a bit like Romans 9 through 11. How can it be that the Messiah has come and this hasn't worked out? And then um, the next narrative section is 14 through 17. And this is the first place that you get the word church. And this is where you have the confession of Peter. This is where you get uh, on this rock, I will build my church. It's sort of like, okay, mm -hmm. in view of all the, the rejection, we're going to have some other institution here. We're going we're gonna to do something else. We're going to have a, a different kind of remnant over here. And as soon as you've got to church, you get chapter 18, which is a discourse to the church, right? Okay, uh, brothers and sisters, forgiveness, and so on. And by the way, chapters uh, 16 and 18 are the only places in the four canonical gospels where you have the word church, ecclesia, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the theme. That's a hint that, okay, mm -hmm. we're doing church stuff now, folks. All right? <laughs> and so Jesus has come. He, he said things. He's done things. The disciples have said and done things. There's been a lot of rejection. We've explained the rejection. We've founded the church. We've spoken words or discourse to the church. What's left to go up to Jerusalem and die? And uh, that's what that that's what happens then in 1920, 21, 22, uh, 23. And then all of a sudden we stop and say, okay, the story's not going to end with the death and resurrection. It's going to go on. So what's coming down the road? So uh, we, we get a view of the future and then we get the, the death and resurrection. So for me, that's the structure. Narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse. Each narrative, each discourse has a major theme. You put them together. You uh, you, you can see what what's going on here. You get the plot, I think, if you understand the structure. And this is also really helpful for understanding why Matthew moves things around in Mark, because he's thinking thematically. He wants all the stuff having to do with this over here and the stuff having to do with that over there. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 
Matthew had to have been thinking like this. It just works too well. <laughs> and along the way, what are the big theological <laughs> themes that come up? Ah, uh, <laughs> well, here you can go on forever. So you just pick these at random. Uh, one film, uh, one, one, one feature, one feature uh, is the theme of fulfillment. All right. So I think you get a sense of this in all four. Well, you do get a sense of this in all four Gospels. But Matthew has these so-called formula quotations. Uh, mm -hmm. John has a couple, but Matthew's got a bunch of them. This all happened in order to fulfill. Right. And uh, he's bringing in explicitly Old Testament quotations and saying they were fulfilled in Jesus. And this is a major theme of the text that it fulfills and takes up uh, up the old. And um, this explains why, in my judgment, uh, Matthew, more than the other Gospels, has, has a Moses typology. There are parallels between Jesus and Moses in, in Luke and John and, and also Mark, but they're, they're clearest in, in Matthew. You know, Matthew starts after the genealogy with a wicked king on the throne, and he kills Jewish infants, and the you mm -hmm. know, and the savior who he's going to save, deliver the people. He's miraculously delivered, and he eventually goes in, in through the waters. By the way, Paul likens baptism to, to passing through the Red Sea. If you remember that, First Corinthians ten, mm -hmm. and then he goes out into the wilderness. He's not there for forty years, but he's there for forty days, and he's tempted to idolatry. He's tempted by hunger, and as soon as he's done that, he goes up on his mountain and uh, delivers the commandments, and then when he's done, he descends from the mountain. Um, it's not just the general theme which, uh, you know, outlines modern movies about Moses. Uh, modern movies about Moses have the same structure, the first seven chapters of, of, of Matthew. But there are also these linguistic hints uh, here and there. Uh, it's clear that he's borrowing so it's a sort of replay, and that's part of the fulfillment of the past. Jesus is somehow uh, reenacting Moses or adding to Moses or living through a new exodus. It's not quite clear how you want to frame this, but that's part of the, the fulfillment thing. A uh, second thing that I would pick out, which is, I th it's also in the other Gospels, but it's clearest in, in, in Matthew, um, Matthew has what I would call a Christological ethic, by which I mean that Jesus doesn't just say things, but he lives the things he's, he says. So he, he says, blessed are the meek, and you ask, what the heck is meek? Well, a couple times later in the Gospels, you're told, well, this is the guy who's meek. Jesus is the one who's meek. Uh, he's persecuted for righteousness' sake. He does not store up treasure in heaven. He turns the other cheek. One of the, one of the fun things to do with the Sermon on the Mount is to go through and look at the correlations between Jesus's imperatives and what he does elsewhere in the text. And mm. you'll find there are a bunch of them. Mm. So he's the opposite of what he accuses the Pharisees of being. The Pharisees are hypocrites. Those are people who say and don't do. This is a guy who says and does. So he's a sort of model of his own um, imperatives. And then the third thing I, I, I'd say about Matthew in general is that there's a lot of eschatology here. There's a lot of it. You just think of chapter 24. Chapter 24 is very long. It has its parallels in Mark 13 and, and Luke 21. But when Matthew's done with that, we had a whole other chapter of eschatological stuff. <laughs> right away. Okay, one chapter, one big long chapter was enough. Here you go. Here's some more. And every single chapter has the theme of, uh, uh, every single discourse has the theme of judgment in it. Uh, the theme of reward runs throughout. So Matthew... I think is a very forward-looking text, or maybe it would be better to say it stands in the future often and looks back at the present. It views the present in light of, of uh, the divine future. Um, so you, I don't see how you get, a, get around eschatology when you're reading the Gospel of Matthew. Mm. Now, among the four Gospels, and perhaps if we talked about the entire New Testament, um, what is distinctive about Matthew? Like, let's say the church did not have Matthew today. What would the church be missing? Well, you wouldn't have the best version of the Lord's Prayer. You just have <laughs> Luke's version, which is a spot, right? You wouldn't have the, the Great Commission, right? You wouldn't have the Great Commission. Right. You wouldn't have the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount... 
has a, has parallels in, in Luke 6. And Luke 6 is lovely. But there's just nothing like this imposing mm. Sermon on the Mount, which has so captivated so many mm. people down through the ages. And I think often when people think about Jesus, uh, they often think first or second of the Sermon on the Mount. This is sort mm. of this what this guy was mm-hmm. asking us to do, right? So... Um, I think with Calvin that the this, this Sermon on the Mount is Matthew's composition, uh, his bringing together of things um, that Jesus said on different occasions and so on. But the 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 final result is just absolutely brilliant. And you mm. can spend a lifetime interacting with these things. And uh, these things have become, um, this discourse has become the conscience, I think it's fair to say, of many, many, many people Mm-hmm. Uh, throughout the last 2000 it's their conscience when they walk around and they see something there are mm-hmm. words from that text that say do this or mm-hmm. or don't do that so uh if matthew only gave us the sermon on the mount that would be reason uh to love him the sheep and the goats the end of chapter five uh that's just such a memorable text right mm-hmm. i remember one of my sons he was very very little uh, and, you know, I read them poetry and Cat in the Hat, but I'd read some Bible <laughs> things once in a while, too. Some pseudepigrapha on, off nights. And, and uh, I remember my son, I don't know what he was, five, four? He said, Daddy, let's do the sheep and the goats again. Right? He It's a little kid. And he caught his imagination, right? Yeah. Um, is this why, Dale, you uh, you subtitled your book, The Sermon on the Mount? The subtitle is Inspiring the Moral Imagination. I mean, yeah. that's really a that nice way yeah. of putting it. It's the it's become the conscience of yeah. many people. I think that's really yeah, yeah. That's true. Uh-huh. insightful. That's how it, how it works. Um, anyway, and, the, and then the last thing is that uh, I, I think Luke was written by a Gentile. I think John was written by a Jew, but uh, there's been a a break there that I don't think is quite the same in, in, in Matthew, an alienation that's not quite the same as in Matthew. And Mark, I think, is written almost primarily for for Gentiles. I think it's Matthew that still has uh, half of himself or more than half of himself in Jesus's Jewish world in a way that the others don't. And then we get a sense here of, of Jewish Christianity that maybe we don't get elsewhere. Paul, of course, is a Jewish Christian, but he's writing to, to Gentiles, right? So we're always mm-hmm. in the Gentile world. Um, and it's one of the sad facts of history that uh, what happens is Christianity becomes all uh, becomes entirely Gentile at some point, and you get these references, like in Justin Martyr or Jerome, for example, to these Jewish Christian groups that probably thought of themselves as in the line of James or in the line of, of Matthew. But they're very marginalized, and they die out sometime in the 4th century or something like that. Um, we still have a sense or a feeling, uh, I think, uh, of Jewish Christianity by reading uh, this gospel, a feeling that we don't quite get uh, mm-hmm. from Paul or Mark or Luke or, or John. Right. So I would hate, I would hate to do without that. Yeah. So we've thought about the world behind the text, the historical context of Matthew. Now we've thought about the text itself, its basic structure and some of its main themes. Now we're going to turn briefly to what we might call the world in front of the text. So how Matthew has been used and how Matthew has shaped later communities. So let's start with the question of Matthew's place in the canon. So why is it the first book in the New Testament? Why is it the first of the Gospels? Okay, so if you're really into divine providence, you could say because God wanted to put it there. <clears throat> but if you're not into divine providence, there is no answer. So if you if you look at all the Greek manuscripts um, that have multiple Gospels, Matthew is usually the first, but it's not always the first. There are collections in which Mark is first, and there's some collections where John is first. I don't think Luke is ever first. And nobody knows why this happened, right? Hmm. Why, somebody put them in this order. 
Who was it? Nobody knows. Uh, why? Nobody knows. Um, and why was it the case that after this caught on, there are still people who feel perfectly free to put them in a different order, right? Uh -huh. it's, it's, you couldn't do that today. Right. You're not going to come out with the new extra revised <laughs> version with first. It's not going to happen. Matthew has to be there. Um, but if you were to ask me just to guess, I would guess that whoever did this was probably thinking chronologically because there was a tradition that John was written last and Augustine thinks Matthew was written first. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking somebody said, okay, let's put these in chronological order. And that would be Matthew, Mark. That was somebody's guess right. as to, to what it would be. So beyond that, though, we just we just don't know. Sometimes the Gospels circulate by themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. That's the case originally. Then we have some evidence that maybe a couple of them circulated together, and some evidence that maybe three. But at some point, already in the second century, there are four. So they have to be collections of four and somebody decides on an order. That's mm -hmm. it. So not very enlightening. Can't, can't do anything with it theologically, unless you're a deterministic Calvinist. Sure. <laughs> well, Dale, let's, uh, I, I'm wondering if you could pick out a few major persistent issues that the church has grappled with in its interpretation of Matthew throughout the ages. Um, what are they? I, I mean, I, I will signal this. This was... I mentioned at the beginning, I don't know if I mentioned at the beginning, yeah. but uh, there's an, this book is one of my favorites. Yeah. And in it, there is an essay. So the book is Studies in Matthew, Interpretations Past and Present, uh, published by Baker. And there's an essay in here. Uh, it's the first, actually, chapter, The Magi's Angel. And this oh, is the uh, one that you that you mentioned at the very beginning when you you mentioned the star. And actually, yeah. I, I read this and I was like, wow, I'm, you know, I'm thinking of the star when I'm reading the Gospel of Matthew, how it leads, you know, uh, the Magi to the exact location of where Jesus is born. And then Dale just kind of blows it out of the water by going to both. He goes to the Hebrew Bible, but he also goes to ancient Christian interpreters on how they interpreted the the star and lo and behold a number of christian interpreters say well the only way that this star could have led the magi to the exact location of jesus's birth it couldn't have just been a star that was way up in the sky how do you find the exact spot it must have been an angel right uh -huh. and i mean this was just you know blew my mind yeah. at the let's say the the treasure troves that were that are in the uh, the church's uh, interpretive history um, but Dale, I wonder if you could point us to what are some like major trends or issues that the church has grappled with as they interpreted Matthew? Okay, so if you look at Matthew, one of the things that has to has to come up uh, is uh, sixteen thirteen through twenty. Now that's the the passage where Peter confesses Jesus to be Messiah, and then in Matthew, but not in the other Gospels, you you get this blessing of Peter. And, you know, mm. on this rock, I will build my church. Mm -hmm. Now, that becomes at some point really, fairly early on, really important for the Western Catholic churches, because this becomes the office of Peter, and mm. it was instituted by Jesus, right? Well, during the Reformation, as you know, this was not an acceptable reading. <laughs> And so you had to interpret the text otherwise. But even before that, there's a difference between the Eastern Orthodox churches or the, the Byzantine churches and mm -hmm. the Roman Catholic Church. What the heck do we do with this? How do we understand Peter? Is he representative? And throughout um, the last few centuries, we have people who have repeated the sort of Roman Catholic uh, interpretation, the Orthodox interpretation. There are Protestants who want to put uh, Peter as low as possible, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and make sure he's just one of the other disciples and, you know, right. they're just Christians like the rest of us. Um, anyway, there's a huge debate on that. And I find that when students come 
to seminary, still a lot of them are interested in this passage, and they've mm. been taught certain things like the rock can't be Peter. Of course, it couldn't be Peter. It must be faith, or or something right. like that. So this, I mean, still goes on. How mm. do we mm-hmm. interpret this so we don't become Catholics, <laughs> or or right? You know, in the in the Protestant tradition. Um, a second thing uh, that's always there is. Matthew five seventeen through 20. Think not that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I came not to abolish, but to fulfill them. And every single commentator, every single one says, huh, that doesn't sound like Paul, right? It doesn't sound like Paul. So how do we fit this with Galatians? Or how do we fit this with Romans? And then we get a whole um, batch of explanations of how we can put these two things together. So um, that's that's always that's always there. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you were to ask me about Matthew, those are the two things that would um, that would jump to my mind. But there's another thing that's that's close to my heart. So Matthew has been used down through the centuries in very anti-Jewish ways very anti-Jewish ways, the the text in 27 especially, uh, you know, his blood be upon us, and uh, anti-Jewish readings of the gospel are all over the place. There has been, I think, a helpful uh, questioning of this uh, in recent times. I've been part of that questioning myself. My own view is that Matthew is still uh, an intramural text. Um, that if you look, for example, at the Hebrew prophets, they're full of, they say horrible things about <laughs> Israel, horrible things, but they say them as Israelites, right? The same thing in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I have argued, and it's, and it's my hope, that that's who Matthew is. Matthew is still part of the people, and he still has a hope uh for them and he's not not writing them off but the text has been read uh as though matthew has written them off for good and jesus had written them off for good and now there's there's nothing but gentiles um so um that is maybe not so much a discussion that's been going on uh, on through church history in the sense that people have taken both sides because uh the tradition has been uh, I think pretty sad here, but um, it's certainly an issue in, in recent times. Uh, well, speaking of books um, or other things that we might recommend, uh, we like to conclude our conversations by asking our guests for a blurb. So, um, and it doesn't have to be a book. It could be it could be a life hack. It could be a TV show or whatever. Now, before we ask you for your blurb, your recommendation. You've just had a book that's come out very recently in the last couple of weeks or so. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a book called in- Encountering Mystery Religious Experience in a Secular Age. And it's not written by the biblical scholar. It's written by a human being and a Christian who's been interested in um, ah, religious and mystical and metanormal experiences his whole life. The the reason I'm in this field, you know, the real reason, forget all the academics, the real reason is because when I was 16, I had this unbelievable mystical experience, dash encounter, something or other. And I've really spent, it's what got me into this. It's Mm -hmm. It's what said, Maybe the word God isn't just some sort of projection. Maybe it refers to to something, right? Wow. Uh, so I've, I've paid attention to religious experience my whole life. I'm a, a big fan of William James. And anyway, this is my attempt to reflect on uh, both personally and critically in an informed way on mystical experiences, on experiences surrounding deathbeds, on miracles, on claims to answered prayer, on experiences that are allegedly encounters with the demonic and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do this 
with an open mind. I don't have a closed, uh, flat universe, but, but I also try to engage the psychological literature and the critical literature and so on. So it, it's, um, it's, it's my attempt to deal with this very important but very difficult uh, area. Okay? Yeah. So well, that's, that, that's, that's what that is. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Is there anything else that you'd recommend to our listeners, a, a book or something else that you've come across recently? Well, so, yeah. So one thing did come to mind. Uh, I knew you were going to ask this, and I was thinking, have I read any really good books lately? Well, that's silly. I read books all the time. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm at an age where I usually can't remember the title or the author. I just know where it is on the shelf. So if I need to go get it, I can find it again. But um, everybody uh, in the field is familiar with E.P. Sanders, Ed Sanders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he wrote a big, important book on, on Paul that came out a long time ago. But just four years, maybe, he he he. He published this big, long book called Paul, something like his life letters and teaching or theology or something like that. It's this big, big, thick book on Paul. (laughs) And I read it, and I just think it's fantastic. I think it's the best book on Paul I've ever read. Hmm. I think it's the best orientation on Paul to Paul, if you want to get oriented, or if you just want to remind yourself uh, of the issues, or you just want to see what a, a great scholar thinks about Paul, uh, you know, at the end of all his work, looking back, this is what I've decided. Uh, I just think it's really, really fine. And it's it's just Ed. There are very few footnotes. There are very mm. few references to anything else. It's the kind of book I hope I can do on something someday, <laughs> where I don't have to spend half my time in the library, right? Figure out what somebody else said recently. Uh, it's just what Ed thinks, and it's really, really good. I really mm-hmm. like it. So if you're interested in Paul, uh, it's big, it's thick, but it's also the kind of book you can jump around in because you can read the chapter on Romans, and then you mm-hmm. can read the chapter on Corinthians. You can you can skip around. Uh, mm. Great, great. Well, thanks, Dale, for taking the time to uh, guide us and our listeners and orienting us to our coming season through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, and to you, our listeners, thanks for listening and tuning in. Uh, if you enjoyed this orientation to Matthew, uh, please go on Apple Podcasts, give us your best five star review, um, and you can find us at the two testaments dot com, where you can catch all the episodes as they come out on Matthew on other books of the Bible. Until then, thank you. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Samford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zelder, and the team in the Samford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.